Okay, we got it live. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Let me get my Bible. Doggone it, I keep forgetting everything today. Um, we're at Psalm 119. Hold on one So sorry about this. I, I thought I had two more minutes, and I didn't. So give me one second here. This is T. Tet. Okay, so we have uh, Psalm 119, verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. And I'm going to read you something about this day in history. It's 28 December, and uh, it's also my son's 30th birthday. So it starts out on a great note here, kind of because my son is adopted from Japan. It says um, his religion was real. The Japanese invaded Borneo in 1942. To escape capture, three Christian and Missionary Alliance missionaries, John Wilfinger and Mr. and Mrs. Richard Lenham fled into the jungle to live with Christians of the Marut tribe. Wilfinger, a bachelor linguist, was anticipating his upcoming furlough and seeing his fiancée again. The Lenhams were working on a Marut translation of the Bible. In July, the three missionaries learned that a group of Europeans had been captured by the Japanese. In response, they moved to another Marut village in the north, northern part of Borneo. There, they learned that Three CMA missionaries serving in eastern Borneo had been imprisoned by the Japanese. Wilfinger and the Lenhams assured that the Japanese would assumed that the Japanese would find them. On September 19th, the messenger brought a list of persons for whom the Japanese were searching. The names of all three were on the list. The messenger warned that anyone harboring fugitives would be severely punished. Stay, the Marut Christians pleaded. We will take you where you cannot be found. The three missionaries discussed what they should do and finally came to a decision. They told their Marut hosts, you would have to lie to the Japanese. We would rather surrender than cause you to be disobedient to God's word. Will, will Finger explained that, explained, and whosoever receives this letter, we feel that we could have successfully hidden, but at the risk of involving these Murtus, who have been kind to us and desirous of hiding us. Therefore, we have decided to go to the enemy, trusting God to the ultimate results. He attached a list of the names and addresses of his loved ones to the letter, asking its receiver to kindly send my love to my family and sweetheart. The missionaries decided to separate. Wilfinger desired to visit several tribal churches in eastern Borneo before turning himself in. The Lenhams, taking their precious Bible translations with them, set out for a Japanese post to the north. Several days later, they walked into a Japanese prison camp and were immediately imprisoned. Miss Lenham miraculously was able to conceal the Gospel of Mark manuscript under wet clothing on the clothesline when the guards searched the women's quarters. A guard discovered the Gospel of Matthew in Mr. Lenham's possession, but after the war, Mr. Lenham found it intact in a rubbish heap. Both Gospels were published for the Maruts by the British and Foreign Bible Society. Wilfinger completed his missionary tour and surrendered to the Japanese on 
28 December 1942, he was executed. After the war, John Wilfinger's Bible was discovered, and inside the cover, he had inscribed a poem. No mere man is the Christ I know, but greater far than all below. Day by day, his love enfolds me. Day by day, his power upholds me. All that God could ever be, that man of Nazareth is to me. No mere man can my strength sustain and drive away all my pain, holding me close in his embrace. When death and I stand face to face, then all that God could ever be, the unseen Christ, will be to me. Below the poem he had written, Hallelujah, this is real. Reflection, is your faith real? As John Wilfinger faced death, he found God's promises to be sure. You can too. As for God, his way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. For who is God except the Lord? But who but our God is a solid rock. And so uh, understanding that and uh, the faith that that person possessed and that he died for his faith, uh, I'll uh, tell the people online that have not heard this, that our brother Paul died yesterday morning. And um, so he's gone off to be with the Lord and he had his faith totally and completely committed to Christ. And uh, there is no doubt that he is with the Lord now, absent from the present, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And uh, we, uh, I would hope that everybody that watches these videos would keep his wife Elaine and their two children in prayer as they decide what they're going to do in the next few days. And uh, you know, they've traveled from up north to come down and be with their mom. And and so we'll just pray that uh, that'll be something that will be without a lot of incident and a lot of difficulty for them. And let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and we thank you for the faith of those missionaries that were willing to risk their own lives for the sake of the people that uh, they uh, were ministering to, and uh, to hold fast to your word, even in such a trial as that. And Lord, we certainly pray for Elaine and her two children as they uh, mourn the loss of Paul, and as they decide what they're going to need to do in the days ahead and how things are going to be worked out in their lives. I would pray that you would give them peace in their minds, knowing that Paul is in a far better place and he's in a body or he has a body coming, which is going to be much, much better, infinitely better than the one that he left behind. And Lord, there are so many that are facing this in their lives and uh, difficulties and trials such as this, pains and and just all kinds of stresses that our bodies face. And we would pray that you would be with them and help them through their trials and keep their faith strong, that they would uh, someday know that they would be standing in your presence with a body that will last forever and forever. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you've so blessed us in this uh, church and uh, in this fellowship and in these Bible studies. And we just commit this hour and a half to you and we uh, just exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. And before we get into Romans, one more thing is the uh, uh, Sunday. The church is going to start on time, but the people that are watching streaming online will not be able to see for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, it just depends. But uh, we have a person coming in to speak to the church on Sunday morning that cannot be put out onto the uh, the broad, you know, the, the streaming because of... Uh, uh, the job that uh, is performed by that individual. And so uh, please understand that uh, we will have church and 
we will be streaming just on time, but you just won't be able to see it for the f first few minutes. And maybe you just take that time and just pray for the person who is speaking, uh, that the words uttered will be ones that uh, will benefit the church and will also uh, uh, pray that that person will be going back overseas to, uh, uh, you know, to bring many souls to Christ. Anyway, there you go. And um, hey, look at these two guys, huh? All the way straight from the cold, cold north. From 10 wow. Degrees. Wow. 10 degrees to sunny Sarasota with shorts on. And, wow. Good to have you guys here. All right, we're in. We're going to start right now in Romans chapter nine. We're in the fifth verse. You guys walked in at the perfect time. So uh, let's see here. Romans, Romans, Romans. And, okay, Romans chapter nine, and we're in verse five. We're gonna. Let's see. I'm one page up. Okay, Romans nine. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with verse one, just so you have the context of where we are. Romans 9, 1 says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Verse 5, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, before I uh, give you my thoughts on Romans 9, 5, one more person I want to ask you to pray for, and we'll try to remember him at the end of the class as well, is uh, the person that does the uh, all of the web work for us. His name is Mike, and he's having some outpatient surgery today, and he may have something very serious he doesn't know yet. So we'll just want try to remember him in prayer as well. Uh, when we get done today. But here we go. Romans 9, 5. I'll read that again. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. So Paul continues his list of honors, which have been bestowed upon the people of Israel, which began in verse four. And uh, that was the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. And then he moves into of whom are the fathers. The fathers are also known in the Greek as we, in English, but I mean, it's a term which comes from the Greek patri, that's right, patriarchs, okay, patri, patri is father, and then ark would be arche, which is the first or foremost, so uh, can anybody name who the patriarchs are? A Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, anybody else? Joseph. Twelve sons of Israel, okay. yeah, and then there's one more, no, Believe it or not, the person called, uh, no, patriarch, believe it or not, is David. He's called a patriarch in the book of Acts. You slept through that lesson. I know you did. So, anyway, yeah, David in the book of Acts is called a patriarch. So, um, uh, but those are the ones that, and Moses would be a patriarch, but I don't think he's ever explicitly called that. But the fathers are, and, you know, we would include Moses as a patriarch, but I just don't believe he's actually called a patriarch, but David is. So anyway, of whom are the fathers? The fathers known as the patriarchs, a term referring to the first fathers, okay? They're the heads of the household of God's people who are looked upon as exemplars of faith in and fellowship with God, okay? The patriarchs include, and oh, I typed it for you, so we, I didn't have to ask you. <laughs> Hebrews uh, 7, 4 says Abraham was a patriarch, the great man of faith who was called and given the promises of God, the sign of circumcision, and who continues to be used as the epitome of faithfulness throughout the pages of the Bible. Isaac and J Jacob are considered, though not explicitly termed, patriarchs also. 
The sons of Israel, Acts 7, verse 8, are called patriarchs as well. And finally, in Acts 2, 29, King David is called a patriarch. So you can turn to that if you get it, just read it out loud, and that way you'll vindicate what I said because I typed it and I had remembered that from before. And while you're looking for that, um, the next title that he gives them are From Whom According to the Flesh Christ Came. So the greatest honor of all for the people of Israel is the one which is noted here. They are the people, the chosen line, through whom came the Messiah, meaning the Christ. Okay, do you have that verse? Yeah. Go ahead. Brethren, I have confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David. The patriarch David. Both he died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. There you go. So David is a patriarch, which would be kind of unexpected, but all the way down the line he was. And uh, okay, so uh, we're going about uh, Christ, the Messiah. He came through the chosen line. His human lineage, according to the flesh, is what Paul says there. His human lineage is traced through this group of people, and it is they whose records detail his ancestry all the way back to who? Adam and Adam. one. Absolutely. Adam and one, and Abraham and the other. That's absolutely right. But uh, they trace it all the way back. It says, Adam, the, uh, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's right. That's in the book of Luke, chapter 3. And uh, it says, uh, trace to this group of people, and it is uh, his ancestry all the way back to the first man, Adam. In the end, everything is tied together in the oracles of God, as Paul calls them, um, as he called them back in Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. Let me read you that just so you know what I'm talking about. The oracles of God whom they maintained. What advantage then has the Jew, or what profit, what is the profit of circumcision? He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So they're the ones the, the ones that maintained the word of God. They Most of it was received by them. The book of uh, Job is suspect. Was it received by Job himself or by a Hebrew about the life of Job? Nobody really knows, but it was the Jews who maintained those oracles. And then in the New Testament, the same thing is true as well. It was written by almost exclusively Jews with uh, two exceptions. What are the two exceptions in the New Testament? Luke and Acts. Okay, and we know that Luke was not a Jew. How do we know that? Where is that recorded? It's in Colossians chapter, anybody? Yeah, okay, let's go there and we'll check it out. Let's see. Um, Corinthians, let's see here. Galatians, Colossians. The way, that, oh, I'm sorry, I said three and it's not. Okay, so, or you said three. I didn't say anything. It's Colossians chapter four. Here's how we know that Luke wasn't a, uh, uh, a um, Jew. It says here, he gives a list of the people's names and he goes, um, from verse 7 down through 10, and he lists people. And then in verse 11, he says, And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, meaning Jews, okay? They have proved to be a comfort to me. And then he starts listing Gentiles. And he gets down to verse 14, and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Luke was not a Jew, okay? You're going to read commentaries by people at some point that say, yes, of course Luke was a Jew. The oracles of God came through the Jewish people, and they, they come up with all kinds. They need to read the book of Colossians chapter 4, okay? Chapter 4. I'll see. That was, I see why everybody said three. The wrong finger was up. Anyway, um, so there you go. Read that again, just so you know. Start at verse 7 of Colossians 4. Go down to verse 11, and you'll see that he says, these are the only ones of the circumcision, my fellow workers, 
And then you go down to verse, um, what, what did I say, verse 14, Luke, the physician, also greets you with Demas, okay? He was not a Jew, okay? So that's, and we talked about that when we were in Romans chapter 3. It's uh, something that people want to argue about. There's no argument. The Word of God stands. It is written. There's no need to go any further than that. So, uh, and another thing, what you're going to see from time to time, and I might as well bring it up before we finish Romans 9, 5, is the Old Testament was written in what language? Hebrew. Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay, you've got uh, one word of Aramaic in uh, uh, Yagar, Sada, Hutha, and Genesis, and you've got a couple of them interspersed, a line right out in the middle of nowhere in the book of Jeremiah, but you've got Daniel and um, uh, Esther. Esther, thank you, and uh, I, also some letters that are written in Aramaic in um, Ezra and Nehemiah, but for the most part, it's Hebrew. There's some Aramaic interspersed in there in the Old Testament. And then it is true that the Old Testament was also written in Greek, but that was afterward. That was a translation of those languages. Okay, so it wasn't originally written in that. And um, then the New Testament, and this is the one that people will argue with. They come up with all kinds of reasons why, in fact, it wasn't this particular um, language. Do not listen to them. What was the language of the New Testament written in? Greek. Okay. 100% certain if anybody ever says, oh, we know it was Aramaic, it was the language of the day, and they all were Jews. Doesn't matter if they were Jews. It was written in Greek. And we know this 100%. How can we know that the New Testament was written in Greek? 100%. It's because you will see this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? And you also see it in the book of Acts. You will, you will see translations in that. It'll say, which in the Hebrew is... And if that verse is a part of scripture, which it is, then they would not say in the Hebrew or in the Aramaic, Gabbatha means, or in the Hebrew or Aramaic, this word means. All four of the Gospels do it, the book of Acts does it, implying, actually it's explicit, but it implies it, that um, uh, it was written in Greek and they were translating back into the original language, Hebrew or Aramaic, the uh, terms that were used, okay? I hope everybody understands that. It was written in Greek, and nobody disputes that the uh, epistles by Paul were written in Greek. Nobody disputes that, okay? He spoke Greek. He uh, had a scribe that would uh, write for him as well, a Greek scribe, and then the later epistles, almost everybody agrees they were all written in Greek as well, okay? Revelation, no doubt about it, was Greek. The only question is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, we know that they were written in Greek. Luke was a Greek physician. He wrote um, Luke and he wrote Acts. But even there, he says in the original, it means this. Like one example is remember when Saul had his vision. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, all right. We know that Jesus spoke in Hebrew to him. I'm, there's just no doubt about it because we went through that in the book of Acts and yet it's written in Greek. So anyway, if anybody ever argues with that, they're trying to be pious. They're trying to be more religious than you. Don't listen to them. Greek is the language of the New Testament. Aramaic and Hebrew was the language of the Old Testament. It is without a doubt. Because if it was not written in Greek in the New Testament, then those verses do not belong in the New Testament. They're not inspired by God, and they are. So, there you go. And uh, on the cross, was that Aramaic? Or okay. Hebrew? Yes. The answer is yes. He asked is, was it Aramaic or Hebrew in... Uh, uh, when Jesus was on the cross, was it Aramaic or Hebrew? And the answer is yes. Okay, I'm going to show you why I say that. It's because if you go to Matthew, it says in Matthew 27, I think. We'll go there really quickly just because you asked it. 
Um, it says, um, he's dying on the cross. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Okay, right? And then in Mark, it says, in Mark uh, 15, it says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. One is in Hebrew, one is in Aramaic. Okay, so even that tells you that they were translating this from uh, for the benefit of the people, right? Okay, but it says right there in those verses, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, and then it's translated into Greek in the original, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That verse could not be in there, inspired of God, if it was written in Aramaic or in Hebrew. Everybody got that now. And you're going to see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it says this, and in the book of Acts, no doubt the entire New Testament was written in Greek. Anybody wants to challenge you, take them to those verses. If they don't listen, ignore them. You know, their, their argument is invalid, okay? Um, it is true, though, that the lingua franca of the land of Israel at the time of Jesus was Aramaic. That's what most of the people would have spoken, okay? That was just the language of the day. Hebrew was relegated mostly to worship. It was in the synagogues. A few people may have spoken Hebrew, but it would not have been a common language. It would be like somebody speaking Latin today, all right? Latin is a dead language, but some people will speak it in school or whatever. That would be what Hebrew would be like during the time of Jesus. The words that Jesus spoke when he was speaking to the people in the land would have been in Aramaic, okay? So, and we know this. There's no doubt about it, and people want to stretch things because they want to well, the, you know, we know that everything Hebrew and everything Jewish is better and blah, blah, blah. It's just like the feasts of the Lord being observed and all that crazy stuff. That's why I, 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 I'm a stickler about these things because it is irrational. It's irrational. Okay, so let's go on. Um, we have, um, uh, let's see here, Romans 3, 1 and 2. I read the reason why this is so important to note, along with the other distinctions given by Paul in Romans 9, 4 and 5, is that these oracles, meaning the Old Testament, these oracles are what tell of the coming Christ. And the names of those included in his genealogy, even those not listed in the New Testament record. They also testify to the other distinctions, such as the covenant promises and so on. These were recorded, they were maintained, and they were handed down by and through the people of Israel. This honor bestowed upon this group is not to be thought minimal in any way, okay? Without these records, the knowledge of Christ and his work would not be properly understood. If we, And that's why he's so stressing this in this particular verse. And I'll read it again. He says, of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. We wouldn't have any of that information as to when he came, the prophecies, unless the Jewish people had maintained those. And that's why Jesus could so adamantly state in um, John chapter 5, what? And then in chapter 6, he's talking about the scriptures. He says, you search the scriptures because they speak of me, right? The very scriptures that they maintain. Somebody asked me about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit yesterday. Okay, got an uh, uh, email from somebody in England, and he asked, somebody said something bad about the Holy Spirit, and is that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And I said, no. There are two contexts for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. One is found in uh, Matthew, and one is found in Luke. Okay, so, uh, is it Matthew or is it Mark? Anyway, uh, the, the second one is in Luke. One of the contexts of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the people of Israel who were the stewards of God's word. 
they had every reason to accept Christ for who he was because they were the stewards of God's word. They understood everything that would be coming about Christ. And when he came and they attributed his work to the devil, he said, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because you people are the ones that should know. Okay, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that cannot be produced again today because Christ isn't with us, right? All we have is the word to go by faith. We don't actually have him standing there, and so we cannot commit that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The book of Luke is a different context, and what he does is when he's speaking about it, it is a continuous, ongoing rejection of the Holy Spirit until one dies. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Lord is calling you throughout your life. You've heard the message. You uh, turn on the Joy FM and you hear the gospel and you turn it off and say, I'm not going to listen to that. You pass by a church and it's got a billboard and the Lord says, I'm, I'm reaching out to you. I love you. And you drive by and you say, I'm not going to listen to that. And then somebody tells you about you're in the hospital and you're having your appendix taken out and somebody comes in and says, can I tell you about Jesus? No, I don't want to hear about it. And you go through your whole life rejecting Christ and you die. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That can be accomplished by anybody today. But there is no sin apart from rejecting Christ until your last breath that will keep you from heaven. No sin. Okay? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the context of Matthew and Mark, or just Matthew is one of them. Anyway, the context there is actually seeing Christ and attributing his work to the devil. We cannot do that. Okay? So don't ever worry about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If somebody says you've come in... I'll tell you why I'm so angry about that particular, and I may have said this before, and I may not have, but I attended the church down here at, um, uh, what was it, um, anyway, the, the little fundamental Baptist church that I used to attend, that my kids went to, uh, Temple, Temple Baptist Church. I was there for a few years, and a missionary came in, and he had given his whole life to Christ. I mean, he had been in the military, and then he got out, and what happened is when he was young, he was at a charismatic meeting, and there were these people rolling around in the grass outside the church, and they were making all these stupid noises, and, you know, and they walked by, and they laughed at him. And another person came up and said, you can never be saved. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, right? So I had a lady try that to me on Facebook one time. I said, yeah, I, I told her she was wrong about a point of doctrine, and she says, well, you blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm like, yeah, okay. Anyway, um, but, you know, and this kid believed it. And he, his whole life changed, and he went into the military, he was a drunk, he thought, I can't be saved, so he just, he just threw his life away. And then while he was in the military, somebody talked to him about the truth of Christ, and he was so overwhelmed, he left the military, he became a missionary, and he, he just this humble, wonderful man. But you listen to people like that, you're just putting yourself in a bad position. You cannot commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit except to reject Christ until your dying breath. That's the only context that applies to people today. Okay, everybody got that one, I hope. Okay. Matthew so, 12. Matthew 12. And Luke 12. And Luke 12. Thank you. Okay, I knew it was Matthew or Mark, and I wasn't sure if Mark repeated Matthew, but definitely Matthew. Okay, and then Luke 12. And like I said, the context drives the interpretation. The Matthew one was written to the Jews, about the Jews, and it was something that he was speaking to them about their conduct. What did you just say? It's Matthew. Uh, 1231 and Luke 12 10. Okay, let Matthew 12:31 and Luke 10, but you've got to read all of the context around it to get the understanding of it. Luke is specifically speaking about the idea of rejecting him ongoing. Okay, so that's the context of that, and uh, we'll go on. Uh, without these people and without their writings, meaning the Jewish people, 
um, the knowledge of Christ and his work would not be properly understood. Okay, the reason for this is that even in the Old Testament, it can be discerned that this coming one, meaning the Messiah, would be overall and eternally blessed God, amen, as Paul wrote right there. Okay, you can, you can get that. Now, you would not have gotten that. I'm not saying that a person reading those verses would have gotten that. But from the Old Testament, you can get that. Okay, when they read Isaiah 9, 6, it was probably the last thing that they thought when it says, you know, his name will be called Wonderful, uh, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Somehow they must have had a disconnect and said, well, that can't be speaking of a human being. Okay, it must be speaking of the spirit that rests upon him or something, right? But you could get it from the Old Testament, even in Old Testament times, all right? You may not understand everything that's coming, but looking back on the work of Christ, you can get it from the Old Testament, no doubt. And how people can miss it now that he has come, it's hard to imagine. Like I say, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they can read those passages and they just, they deny completely the, the deity of Christ. And you can show them every single incorrect translation from their Bible. And they'll say, well, this is done by, you know, it, these Bible translation people. Like some people will say that the Greek uh, Old Testament, the, uh, the Septuagint, is the only inspired version and you shouldn't use anything else. Jesus and the apostles cited it more than anything else. And so they say you're only to read the Septuagint. And then some people say only the Masoretic text is inspired by God. You shouldn't read anything that's outside of the Masoretic text. But... Guess what? When the King James Version translates the Masoretic text, they don't translate it all the time because there are obvious things that were manipulated by the Jews, the Masoretes, okay? And so you've got a problem there. And then some people will say that only the King James Version is inspired, and you should only read that. And then you get people that will say that only the Aramaic Bible, you'll get a cult of people like that. Only the Aramaic Bible should be written, read. And so you can buy it online, and you can spend $150 for your own copy of the Aramaic Bible. And all. This. Well, guess what? When you're reading the Aramaic Bible... What language is it translated into? English, right? So it's not the Aramaic Bible anyway, right? Because somebody has translated it. And if you give it to another 10 million people, 10 million different translations will come out of that Aramaic Bible. They will never be the same, okay? Don't get stuck in people's false logic about translations. God has given us his word, and he's given us a, an abundant amount of his word. He's given us Greek translations and Hebrew translations. He's given us English translations. He's given us text from here and there, and we can determine the original. I've done that before up here, very precise, but you can know that you have the word of God. God has done it in a way that there is no doubt that we have that word. It's not included in one single translation. We talked about the reasons why God did not allow the originals to be kept as well. There are very important reasons why he would have done that. I'd give you a couple of them right now. One is that if one person has the original word of God, they now have complete authority over you, okay? They can say, I have it, and you're not going to get it, all right? And you have to trust me with this, and then they can wield their power over you. Uh, there are, uh, just had another one leave my mind, but there are several very good reasons why God would have kept the originals away from us but only the originals would have been inspired and breathed out by God through that prophet or apostle, okay? Anyway, um, and we'll do that study sometime when we get to a, an appropriate chapter, but we'll go on. Um, the Old Testament, uh, it, you could tell Jesus was the eternally blessed God, amen, even from the Old Testament, and that he is even now. In other words, the deity of Jesus Christ can be understood clearly and plainly, even from the Old Testament. 
In addition to this, his manhood is seen as well. And that's why I say somebody before Christ may have been a little bit confused. Well, it says the Messiah is a man, and then it seems to say he's God. So they never would have thought he would be the God-man. Nobody would have anticipated that. Even the angels didn't anticipate it. It was something that was completely hidden from them. But the Old Testament will say that the Messiah is, is God, and it will say that he is a man. And we can see that in its fullness when we read it now. Okay, so he's a man. Therefore, it is implicit that what was coming, as recorded by Israel, was the incarnation. God stepping into his own creation and doing what was necessary to right the fault which occurred at the beginning. Unfortunately for Israel, as Jesus noted in Luke 12, because these oracles testified to him, John 5.39, Israel should have known better. So let me read you what it says there in Luke 12. It says, Luke 3, 7, we're getting it, and 11, 12. Okay, he says, uh, and that servant who knew his master's will and uh, did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed these things, uh, deserving of everyone to whom Oh, I'm sorry, but he who did not know yet committed these things, deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Okay, and then in John 5, 39, he said... That's, go ahead and say it louder, say it louder. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify, testify of me. me. Absolutely right. So there you go. They are they that testify of me. And that's what he was saying to the people of Israel. You go search the scriptures, you're going to see me. And the things that I am doing, it is evident. And that's why he said, you attributed the work of God to that of the devil, and you have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There is no salvation for a person that would do that. That cannot be done today because Jesus is not standing here in front of us doing his miracles. We have this just like they did. They had to live by faith in the coming Messiah. We have to live by faith in the revealed Messiah. But this book is what tells us of it, okay? So we cannot commit that type of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And if somebody says that you have, and don't drink your life away, okay? Don't listen to them, all right? You just call on Jesus and you will be saved. Very simple process. Okay, so um, let's see here. Uh, much, a great deal indeed, was given to Israel, and they handled the responsibility negligently. Because of this, they went into exile for a second time. We talked about that last week. Leviticus 26 presupposes two exiles, not one, but two. They went into exile for a second time. How this would affect the rest of the world and how it will affect this special group in, of people in the future will be discussed by Paul in detail in the verses and chapters ahead. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is going to tell us. If you miss what's being said about that, then you're going to be a replacement theologian. You're going to believe that the promises of the Old Testament belong to the church. And we've already gone through that. I'm not going to do it again today. But at the end of this particular devotional, I included a poem that somebody had written, author unknown, but it's called The Jew, and it's worth listening to. Think of it. Think of what this man wrote because he understood. Scattered by God's avenging hand, afflicted and forlorn, 
Sad wanderers from their pleasant land do Judah's children mourn, and e'en in Christian countries few breathe thoughts of pity for the Jew. Yes, listen, Gentile, do you love the Bible's precious page? Then let your hearts with kindness move to Israel's heritage, who traced those lines of love for you. Each sacred writer was a Jew. And then as years and ages passed and nations rose and fell, through clouds and darkness oft were cast or captive Israel. The oracles of God for you were kept in safety by the Jew. And when the great Redeemer came for guilty man to bleed, he did not take an angel's name, no, born of Abraham's seed. Jesus, who gave his life for you, the gentle Savior, was a Jew. And though his own received him not and turned in pride away, whence is the Gentiles' happier lot? Are you more just than they? No, God in pity turned to you. Have you no pity for the Jew? Go then and bend your knee to pray for Israel's ancient race. Ask the dear Savior every day to call them by his grace. Go for a debt of love is due from Christian Gentiles to the Jew. Life application. All of scripture points to Jesus, his incarnation, which is the uniting of God with humanity. Although this may be a hard concept for us as humans to get, grasp, it is the clear intent and truth found in scripture. A denial of the deity of Jesus Christ is a denial of God's work on our behalf. One who denies Jesus Christ is Lord cannot be saved. Cannot. You must call on the Lord Jesus to be saved. If you walk away from him, he's not going to unsave you, but you will lose your rewards. But a person who has never called on Jesus will never be saved. You cannot deny his deity, his lordship over you. That's not talking about lordship salvation. That's talking about who Christ is, the man. Salvation comes from the gospel, which is that Christ was crucified for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again for our justification. If you believe in that, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, if you call on Jesus as Lord, meaning Jehovah of the Old Testament, you will be saved, okay? But it's one of those fundamental things that we cannot deny. And, you know, it's funny because this time of year, it's happened every year that I remember, is that uh, talking about what this beautiful poem this guy wrote, he understood that Jesus is a Jew. And we see in the news, we saw it last week, I've seen it every year, is that uh, Jesus was a Palestinian. Have y'all seen those articles? This I, She saw one just apparently in the past couple days. But yeah, Jesus was a Palestinian. Well, there was no Palestine. It was Israel, and he was a Jew, and he is a Jew. Okay? The record is recorded in Matthew 1, and it's recorded in Luke chapter 3. There's no doubt that he was a Jew. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. Okay? It is something false. And as I showed in the uh, recent prophecy updates, even the Palestinians deny that there is any Palestinians. They just assume the title in order to drive a wedge between Israel and the world. And that's the only reason why that term is used at all. The term is actually Palestinian. Okay, we'll go on. Verse uh, 9-6, new chapter, or uh, paragraph here. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. This is important to understand what Paul is going to be saying in the next verses, because if you take them to an illogical uh, extreme, you're going to suddenly become a replacement theologian, okay? So we've got to be careful how we handle the next many verses throughout chapters 9 through 11. 
One has to pay attention to what they are reading concerning Israel or suddenly a false impression of who Israel is comes into play. Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel. There is nothing in Paul's writings to indicate otherwise and everything to dispel such a notion. However, far too often people in the church look at verses such as Romans 9, 6 that I just read you and tying them together with other verses come to the conclusion that if there are those who are not Israel, who are of Israel, then the opposite must somehow be true. Those who are of Israel now were not previously of Israel. This is a faulty premise, and it is not supportable at all from Scripture. Having said this, Paul will show how those who were not God's people, meaning Israel, become God's people by faith, and how those who are God's people, Israel, are not truly God's people because they lack faith. Absolutely. Again, the categories are set between Israel and non-Israel. And who are God's people and who are not God's people. Keep these categories straight and the error of thinking that the church becomes Israel will not be made. But if you don't keep them straight, you're going to say, well, because what people do is exactly what I just said. They make a fallacy. They say A, therefore B. Just because this says this, then B must say this, and it doesn't. B does not equal A, all right? You have to think logically when you're reading what Paul is saying, because he was a logical person inspired by the God of logic, okay? With this understanding, Paul begins verse 9-6 with, but this is showing a contrast of his thoughts on verses 1 through 5. He's been describing the honors and the distinctions of being a son of Israel, and now he shows the contrast. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. The word which establishes and explains the duties of the people of Israel is not to blame for any fault which arises in the people. Just because the word is pure does not mean that the people are pure. Okay, everybody got that? God said something to Adam, and Adam didn't do it. God's word was pure, but Adam defiled the word. Okay, just because somebody is a steward of God's word does not mean that they are pure in and of themselves. Look at the prophets, right? They were people. They were not pure. If they were, then they would have been the Messiah. They had faults. They were people with faults, but God used them to give us the words of Scripture. Okay, so where is it? Um, uh, he shows the contrast. Okay, um, the word which establishes and explains the duties of the people of Israel is not to be uh, blamed when fault arises. It is the basis for who they are, meaning the Word of God is the basis for who they are, and explains how they were to conduct themselves because of their honored status. Okay, that's what the Word was given. This is your duties as the people of Israel. You were to do this and this and this. And you know, I'm reading through the law again right now, along with the, doing the sermons and everything. And I, I have to stop constantly. I mean, literally constantly. And I have to say, thank God that we are not under this law. What a burden the law is. What an absolute burden that those people faced. But you know what? They committed to it. Before he even finished giving them the law, they said, Venishma, uh, um, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, I'm thinking of the term and it just flew right out of my head. Anyway, they say, we will hear and we will obey. Oh no, they said, we will obey and we will hear. It says it one way first and then it turns around and it's, Na'aseh ve'nishma. That's what, we will obey, we will do, and then we will hear. 
Okay. In other words, everything that was following after, they'd already been given some of the law. They said, we agree and we will do and we will hear. Everything that comes after, we will put ourselves. So they really opened themselves up for anything. They were committed at that point. Anyway, so um, remembering that, that they and their conduct was directed by the law. And if they failed, it is not because the law was improper. Okay. One thing that I said, and I think it's the devotionals that I'm typing right now. I don't know. Anyway, something I'm typing is that um, uh, we had dietary. It is. It's the 1 Timothy devotionals because we're getting into the part where the people are told not to eat certain foods, right? Uh, and which Paul says is wrong. You can eat anything. Anything that is created by God is good and nothing is to be um, uh, refrained from if it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Okay. And so you have to ask yourself, well, then why? Did he give Israel dietary laws? If we're not under any dietary laws, why would he have done that? Well, the reason why is because Israel was there to picture the coming Christ. As we saw in the dietary laws, if you watch those sermons, every one of the dietary things that he picked out, the word behind it was pointing to something corrupt in human beings. Don't eat this, right? And the, the hooves of the animals. They're divided, but they're not completely divided. Then you can't eat it because you were supposed to rightly divide the word of God. The type of fish that you can eat, the scales, was to picture something right in the word of God. Anything else was not to be eaten. So it was, one, to picture the coming Messiah, and two, it was to sanctify them as God's people apart from the other people of the world. It was a special sanctification which does not apply today because Christ has come. All right, so we need to remember those type of things that... Israel failed, but the law was not the problem. It was their problem for not obeying the law. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, as we proceed through Paul's thoughts in the coming verses and chapters, he will quote this very word of God, the Old Testament, which details their responsibilities and which identifies those who are truly of Israel. This is why he mentions it now. Once this baseline for his thoughts, meaning the scriptures, is noted, he then makes his pronouncement, which will be supported by this baseline. And his pronouncement is, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Once again, he's not talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about Gentiles at all. He says that they are not all of Israel who are of Israel. Okay, hello. So he's still only talking about Israel. We cannot mix Gentiles into this in any way, shape, or form. The seemingly contradictory statement will be fully explained by using the very scriptures that the Israelites stand on as their evidence for being God's special people in the first place. Okay, so he's making this statement. They're not all of Israel who are from Israel. Okay, not talking about the Gentiles. We cannot, as I said earlier, take the opposite and say, well, if they're not all, then that means that not all Gentiles are not of Israel. We can't do that. That's a fallacy of thinking. That is what's called a category mistake. Israel is one category. Gentiles, who have not yet been mentioned, are another category. Completely different categories. Don't mix the two, okay? But if you're a replacement theologian, as soon as you get to Romans 9, 6, you're going to start saying, well, see, and you're going to make that category mistake. That's where the error comes into the Bible. Okay, life application on this verse when we come to conclusions from concepts in the Bible, they must square with the various categories which the Bible sets down first. If we misunderstand these categories, then false assumptions are going to result. Sometimes it's not easy to define these categories. 
especially when we already have ideas about what we want to believe. If you were brought up in a Reformed church, you know, a Lutheran church or a Presbyterian church or an Anglican church, you've been taught this your whole life. Of course, you're going to have to set that aside and say, I'm just going to go where the Bible says this. Israel is a category. I'm not Israel, despite what my grandpa told me, and I'm going to go with that. The baseline is Paul writing. The baseline isn't what you were taught in your church, okay? Paul's baseline is now set, and at that time, there was only Israel and the Gentiles, and that hasn't changed. So we need to remember that baseline as we're going along, okay? Making charts, and this is something I used to do a lot. I really don't do it anymore. But making charts as you read and study is often a very good idea to help you align your thought with what the Bible intends. Israel here, not all of Israel are Israel. He never mentions Gentiles, so you put Gentiles over here and put a line between the two. That'll help you out. It'll help you get your boxes straight. It'll help you get your categories straight. I used to do it a lot. I don't do it anymore. I just I don't, Maybe I don't need to. Maybe I, I don't know. I just don't have the time. But making little charts and stuff and asking the Bible questions as you're going along is a really good way of, you know, it's like I, I used to, uh, out on the beach, Turtle Beach, I had a sign. I still got it in the garage in case I ever get time to go out there again. But it said, Bible questions answered. Don't be shy, right? And I put it out on the beach and people would come up and ask questions. And questions I had never thought of in my life. You want to learn really quickly? <laughs> be put on the spot like that because the next time you go out there you're going to say i'm not making that mistake again you know they'd ask you a question where is this and i'd say well, i think it's in the book of luke and you spend 20 minutes and they walk down the beach they're gone right <laughs> you don't want to do that a second time so asking yourself questions and then writing them down and saying i need to get this answer will help you as well they say that uh, a teacher learns a lot more than the students guaranteed 100 percent correct no doubt about it, because the students ask the questions and the teachers have to learn in order to give a, if they care, they're going to go learn to make sure they give the right answer. Okay, 9-7. Here we go. Nor are, I'm going to read 6 again, just so you've got the baseline. <laughs> but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Okay, in order to substantiate his statement, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, Paul returns to the fountain, to scripture, to validate this concept already with its precedence. Okay, excuse me. Abraham had a son through his maidservant, Hagar. Thank you. His son's name was Ishmael. God hears. Okay, he was Abraham's firstborn. But God rejected Ishmael and his line for the honor of ushering in the Messiah. In fact, no descendant of Ishmael is recorded as being in this line for the rest of the Bible. How do I know? Because I went through the whole Bible and I checked. And there's, He's of the flesh. Right. He is of the flesh. Right. Instead, God told Abraham that he would, in fact, have a son through his wife, Sarah, who had been barren for many decades. When the son came, he named him... Yitzhak, that's a Yitzhak, which means laughter, okay, Isaac. Sometime after Isaac's birth, Sarah died, and Abraham went on to have more children through other wives and concubines. And yet, the reckoning of Abraham's seed was and would remain only through Isaac. The precedence was set in this example, that being a descendant of someone by blood does not necessarily mean that they will be included in the spiritual blessings which may accompany the bloodline. Isaac was not included. The sons of Keturah, 
right? Midian and Mishbach, and uh, you know, there's like a bunch of names. I think there's another eight, 10, 12 of them. Anyway, all of those sons, Ishbach, not Mishbach. Anyway, all of these sons that are recorded from uh, Keturah and his other concubines are not included in the spiritual blessing. So you can be a descendant of Abraham and not be of Abraham according to what the promise says. Well, he's using that as an, a precedent. So now that we can see that the same thing must be true with the people of Israel. Okay, so, um, yeah, bloodline. The, this premise should be obvious because ultimately we all descend from one man, right? Where is that recorded in the Bible? Not in Genesis. Where is it recorded? Uh, Romans 12. I was thinking of a, in Acts explicitly, it says. But you're right, Romans 12 as well. I was thinking of Acts chapter right after 16. Uh, yeah, that's right, chapter 17. In verse uh, 26, he says, And he made has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Uh, some translations will say of one man, okay, meaning Adam. All of us, go cut a person's arm in Africa, and it's going to bleed the same red blood that it bleeds out in Japan. And in Burke, who just cut himself while shaving over there, stop shaving, would you? Okay, anyway, so you see, we're all descended from one blood, okay? That is a truth that the Bible proclaims there and elsewhere, okay? So we have that. Um, uh, it's obvious we all descend from Adam. But to make the point of election clear, Paul is using those to whom the promises were given and then showing that not all of their descendants are included in those promises. The same thing will happen again after Abraham and Paul will cite that example as well in order to continue to make his case concerning election. As a sure example that what he is saying is correct, we see the same thing being relayed by Jesus in a verbal altercation with the Pharisees. He shows that one's bloodline is not the only factor that can be considered in a relationship with God. He says it in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And he says here, They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. He's speaking on a spiritual level. It's true they descended from Abraham, but not all of Israel are Israel. He's just confirming what Paul said. He goes on. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Uh-oh. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he has sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, that's right, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So, yeah, he's absolutely making the same case that Paul is making right here. Would anybody here say that we are Judah? Have you ever heard anybody in any church ever say, well, we are now Judah? No, nobody would ever say that. We're not the Pharisees. We're not those people, right? But they'll say we're Israel. It's illogical. There is a category that's set. Write it down on your paper and put a line there. He's talking about Israel. Before I go on, I want to thank my daughter. I don't, she may be watching right now. She may not be, but 
I got a shirt from her. I just got it. I opened it today because I've had a busy week. It says, red shirt. I might not make it. Anybody got that? Star Trek, the guy with the red shirt beams down with Kirk and he always gets killed. Okay, there you go. If you're in a red shirt and you beam down with Captain Kirk, you ain't coming home. So my daughter got me this. I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign. But anyway, there you go. Thank you, Tansy. Uh, okay, I love it. Yeah, I got to, I got my Star Trek shirt on today. Okay, here we go. Um, let's see. Um, it's a shirt. Okay, Star Trek is not real. If anybody has a problem with that, it's not real. It's just a show. Okay, here we go. Um, let's see. Uh, you are going to be beamed up. You what? You are going to be beamed up. I am going to be beamed up. There's no doubt about that. It won't be by Scotty, but I will be beamed up. There is no doubt about that. Okay, so I read you John 8, 39 through 44. We've got our category set. Life application. Yes, we got time. When witnessing to others about Jesus, asking, are you a Christian, isn't the best approach to determining the truth of the matter. I made this mistake with somebody two days ago. All right. In fact, it can set up a barrier which will then be hard to break down. The reason is that many people believe that they are Christians because they were born into a Christian home. Not all who are of Christ are Christians, we could say, right? Or who are Christians are of Christ would be a better way of saying it. However, being a saved Christian isn't congenital. Instead, every individual must choose to follow Christ. So if you ask somebody, are you a Christian? you may get a faulty answer. We get it in the projects all the time, don't we? I mean, all the time. Ask somebody, are you Christian? And they say, well, what does that mean to you? And all of a sudden, they have no idea what it means to them. No idea. So it's not a good thing to say, well, you're a Christian. Well, then good. I'm done with my job here. Listen, I thought I was a Christian for 36 years of my life. I went to the Episcopal Church, and I was, what do you call it when they, uh, or uh, not bad. Uh, confirmation. I was confirmed. Yeah, that's right. Oh, boy. It meant nothing, didn't it? Um, I can take that pen off, right? Yeah, take that off, throw it away. Okay, all right, so verse 9-8. Let's see here. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Okay, he's starting to continue to define it, but has he brought in any other category than Israel? No, he's been talking about Israel. He hasn't brought in any other category except to give an example of Abraham, and Jesus gave his example to the people, you're of the, your father, the devil. But he hasn't brought in the Gentiles. He hasn't brought in the church. He's speaking about Israel, okay? This verse is speaking directly of the line of promise from Abraham. This line is through Isaac as opposed to all of the children of Abraham who physically descended from him. Because it is speaking in this fashion, the implication is that the same concept applies to later generations as well, okay? Got this, this idea going through the Bible, and we need to stick to it. Now, when I did the Genesis sermons, and if you haven't heard them, go back and watch them, and you'll understand. Every time I come to Abraham and then Isaac, I very clearly define, this is the line of promise, here's what God is doing, here is who is not included in that, and I go through them very carefully so that you will follow this line. Okay, well, Paul is now on the other side of the cross, and he is clarifying it for us to understand. Okay, concerning Abraham, who is being spoken of in verse 7, those who are of the flesh are all born directly from him, but who are not of the promise. Oh, and I gave the list here. Ishmael, Zimram, Yakshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua, and any others not recorded because he said he had other concubines and sons and daughters, but who physically descend from him. 
It then says, these are not the children of God. They're just people that were born in a normal way. He had a concubine, she had a baby, right? They're not included in the promised line of Isaac. In this list, Isaac wasn't named even though he was born from Abraham. I've done this because Paul is making a point about those who are of the promise as opposed to those who are not of the promise. The difference is found in his words, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Okay, he's making, he's defining what he's talking about. Taking all of Abraham's physical descendants and calling them the children of God would be a mistake, right? Other than Isaac, they are merely human beings born in the natural way and to whom no promise was made. However, Isaac came by a promise. We're going to see that in verse 8. Well, we saw that in verse 829. Let me go back there and we'll read that. Maybe I meant to write 929. Let me see here. 829. Um, I must have meant 929. Let me take a look at that. Yeah, 929. I, he's talking about, um, uh, why did I put 829? Isaac came by, as will be seen in verse 829. Anyway, we're going to see it eventually, and I've obviously put down the, uh, I, I must have been smoking the wrong thing that night or something. I'm kidding. Please don't take that seriously. Anyway, um, uh, okay, as noted above, Paul is showing that the same concept certainly applies to later generations as well. Okay, so we have this line of people, and later generations are going to apply to it. Those who believe are of the same line of promise as Isaac. Those who don't believe are excluded from the line even those who were physically born as descendants of Abraham. Everybody got that? It is by faith. It is faith in the coming Messiah that you were included in this promise. How do we know this is true? We have something that was given through Moses to the people of Israel. It's called the law, the law of Moses, okay? Right, now, there are provisions in the law. There are things that people have to do. There, when you do something wrong, you're supposed to do this and that. A lot of them, as I show when we're going through these Leviticus sermons, a lot of them are things that only the person would know about. Nobody else would know, right? There would be no way in the world that somebody knew that he touched an unclean dead corpse. Nobody's in the wilderness with him. He's out there doing And yet he's unclean until evening and he's got to do certain things. And there are all kinds of provisions like this in the law, all kinds of them. On the Day of Atonement, the people were to do what? Fast. They were to deny themselves. They were to humble themselves. They were to abase themselves. They were to do no work. It is a Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath of holy rest. It is a day set apart where nobody was to do any work at all. If a guy is out in his house, out in the, the meadow, right, and he's in his workshop and he's grinding away with this, is anybody going to know that? Nobody. Is that man a man of faith? No. And it says that anybody who works on this day will be cut off from his people. And yet nobody knows it, except him. And yet the Lord has cut him off from his people. Not everybody who is of Israel is Israel, okay? The law itself shows you that this is true. There are people within Israel that were not of Israel. And throughout the years, I mean, they didn't observe half of the feasts half of the time. You get to like the time of King Josiah and it says, they had a Passover that wasn't like celebrated since the time of Joshua or something. And you think, how can that be? We think that they were this holy group of people that were always being obedient to the Lord. They were always doing what they were told. Every year they went down and they observed the Passover when the Bible itself disproves that type of thing. Half the time they weren't doing anything that they should have been. 
they were just this collective group of people. They'd come together under a good king. They'd get dispersed under a bad king. They'd start worshiping Paul's. They weren't observing the Day of Atonement. They were not of Israel. This is the point that is being made right here. And if you just pick up the Bible and read it, you can see it is of faith that you are of Israel. You are having faith that the law of Moses is leading to a good end, that all of the prophets that have been speaking are leading to the Messiah. That is what your faith is. And you say during the, the year, I didn't do this and I didn't do this and I failed to get a sacrifice when I did that. Well, thank goodness the day of atonement is coming and that will cover my sins. That person is living by faith because he knows that his sins are going to be covered because he's been told that. It always is of faith. It is never of anything else that a person is saved, Old Testament or New. It is always of faith because in Leviticus 18.5, is it? The man who does these things will live by them. And nobody lived by those things. Nobody, because they're all dead and they're in their grave. None of them lived. But some of them were saved because they had faith. Not one person in Israel ever did the things of the law with the exception of Christ. That's what we need to keep reminding ourselves. What he is writing about here is a truth that is absolutely found in Scripture. It is not everybody who is of Abraham, uh, is born of Abraham, is of Abraham. Not everybody who is of Israel is Israel, or you know what I'm trying to say. Anyway, so um, it says here, to understand this fully, all we need to do is look at the world today, okay? Many claim physical descent from Abraham, right? Who are they? They're called the the Jews, right? We got a synagogue right down the road, Chabad, right? We got Jews in Israel, right? They claim to be descendants of Abraham all over the world. We got six million of them up in New York, right? With biggest outside of uh, uh, Israel itself is the biggest group of Jews in the world is the people that are up in New York, okay? So they, uh, they claim physical descendant from Abraham. We have Arabs, for example. They trace their descent from Ishmael, don't they? They come right from Ishmael, so they know that they are of Abraham, okay? However, they are not sons of God because of this descent. They are only sons of God if they are Arabs who believe in Christ, right? We have some of them that are our friends, right? Arabs that believe in Christ, okay? They are only sons of God if they are Arabs who believe in Christ. If they are Muslims, they're not sons of God, even though they descend from Abraham. So we can look at the world today and we can get an understanding of this. The Jews who don't believe in Jesus cannot be sons of promise because the promised Messiah has come. So they can't be sons of promise. Even though there are six million of them in New York, there's millions of them in, in Israel. We've got them scattered all over the world. And they say, we're Jews, but they're not sons of promise because they do not believe in the promised son, okay? This is because the promise is given to and through Isaac was the promise of the Messiah. It was not a promise intended to stop with Isaac, and it wasn't a promise that was intended to stop with Jacob. The branches continued to come out of the tree until Messiah is revealed. Those who have faith in this branch are grafted into the tree and become children of God by faith. Those who don't are cast out as rejected branches, right? Everybody understand that? All these people say we descend from Abraham. You hear it on CNN or whatever all the time. Well, they're all Islamic, or they're all uh, of the faith of Abraham, right? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything because the promise did not stop with Abraham. The promise didn't stop with Isaac. The promise didn't stop with Jacob, who is Israel. So all the Jews that say we are the promised sons 
can't be the promised sons if they haven't accepted Christ because the line went from Israel to Judah and then from Judah to David and then from David it went down through this line until it arrived at Christ. He is the end of the promise. No, nowhere before that. And so if you say I'm a son of the promise, you have to be a believer in Christ. If you're not, then you're, you're on the wrong path. You might think you're a son of promise, but you're not. Okay? So that's why when Jesus comes back and the Jews there call on him, all Israel will be saved. There won't be many of them left, but they will be saved because they will now say, we have put our faith in the promised Messiah. Not whoever they thought was coming, but in the one who actually came. The only life application, the only bearing that physical descent has on God's redemptive program was in order for humanity to lead to the Messiah. This line continued on for thousands of years until it came to Mary, born of the line of David. However, the Bible records that even Mary had other sons, and they are not messiahs, are they? We don't even know what their names were, right? We know Jude, we know, uh, we've got a couple of them, but we don't know all of them. They had sons and daughters, right? So we know who they are. They are not messiahs. So even Mary is not the stopping point. The stopping point must be the one who was born of Mary and of God, okay? Only Jesus fulfills the plan, and so even Mary's other sons had to call on Jesus as Lord. As you can see, your physical descent into a Christian home is irrelevant, absolutely irrelevant. Only personal faith in Jesus counts towards your adoption as a child of God. That's why infant baptism is such a scary thing. Because when you hear somebody say, well, I was baptized into the Catholic Church, guess what that means? It means less than this, okay? If that's possible, it means less than this. There's absolutely zero. But they are trusting in their baptism into the Catholic Church to get them to heaven. They ain't going to get there, right? You have to have faith in God's promised Messiah. That is what Paul is saying here. Now, now that I have said that Israel is not included, I'm talking about those of Israel who are not Israel. They are not included in this promised Messiah. But they will be. I want to make sure that in case somebody watches this particular episode and says, well, I'm not going to watch anymore because he's rejecting the Jewish people. I'm not. They've been broken off, but they will be grafted, grafted back in. Okay, and we're going to talk about that. They are not included today. No Jew, John Hagee, is saved by the law of Moses. No Jew. Not one. Okay? Only Christ can save a person. Dual covenantalism is a heresy. John Hagee is a heretic, and it must be understood. What he teaches is absolutely as bad as it can be because it consigns those people that he says, you're okay in your station to eternal hell because he's not willing to say you must come to Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Then what he does is he equivocates and he says, well, they're all saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. So they think that they're saved through Christ even though they haven't come to Christ because he's saying that that covenant saves them into Christ. He's, he, he manipulates words to get around theological truths. I would not listen to that guy because he's a very good speaker, and unless you know what he's saying and unless you understand what he is saying, you can really get misled by that guy. Be very careful listening to him. He is a heretic. Who is it? John Hagee. He's a, he's a Texas preacher that is a great, great orator. He's one of the greatest speakers you'll ever hear. Man, when he speaks, you think, this guy knows what he's talking about. And all he does is he throws in these little seeds of heresy. you got to be really careful. The what? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he could be a saved guy, but he is teaching people 
non-saved people thinks it will never get them saved. It is absolutely crazy. It doesn't even make sense. What's that? If you couldn't be saved by the law... The exactly. Then how can you how be saved by the law now? The but Testament. that's what he does. He equivocates on what he is saying so that people think, oh, well, they're saved by the blood of Christ. They're not saved by the blood of Christ because Christ has come. That's the problem. The people of the time of the law were looking forward to Christ. Once he came, the whole dynamic changed. changed. The entire dynamic changed. Those who were looking forward to Christ by faith, as we just talked about a few minutes ago, were saved. They were sons of faith in the coming Messiah. Well, that Messiah has come, and now we have the full revelation of who he is. We cannot go back and say we are saved in the hope of the coming Messiah. He has come. He's here. You see where the, that's a terrible problem that we have to go through, is that people teach these things, and then they, you listen to what they're saying, and you get confused. But he's the same guy that said that Jesus never proclaimed to be Messiah. With his own mouth, go on YouTube and type it in. John Hagee says that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. And you'll get the, the ad where he's selling his book. Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, I hate to say it, but he did explicitly a couple times, like to the woman at the well. And then he calls himself Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer, which, by the way, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, showing that the New Testament was written in Greek. Not in, It's another, going back to what we talked about earlier, right? And then after that, guess what? It says the word Christ, what? 17,000 times in the New Testament, 10 billion times, whatever. It doesn't change in meaning ever. Christ means Messiah and Messiah means Christ. He is, he is really not a good handler of scripture. Be very careful with that guy. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, let's see here. We have time. Yes, 9-9. We're just burning up the page today. 9-9 says, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. As a way of seeing what Paul of seeing what Paul is doing with his words over the past few verses, note how he ties them together into greater concepts. Okay. But it is not the word of God, he uses that term, has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's verses 6, 9, 6 through 9, okay? So he uses the term the word of God, and then he calls them children of God down a couple verses later. And then he says children of promise, and he uses the term word of promise. He's equating the children with the word of God, okay? Everybody see what he's done there? He's taken those concepts. Burke, let me read it to you again because I can see you're looking at it, okay? He says, this is verse 6, but it is not that the word of God, right? See where he says that? And then he goes down in verse 8. He says, these are not the children of God. So you have the word of God. And you've got the children of God. And then you've got in the same verse, but the children of promise. And then you go down to verse 9, for this is the word of promise. He's tying the people in with the word. Okay? As you can see, he's making a direct connection between the word of God and the word of promise. The Greek word logos is used for both concepts. He is also tying the children of God with the children of promise. The foreknowledge of God is seen quite clearly here. 
and the connection becomes a demonstrable truth as he reaches back into recorded history to show us this. And not only is it recorded history, but it is the recorded history which establishes the people of Israel and the covenant of promises. Understanding this allows us to see more clearly what he will tell us concerning our own election. Using the scriptures, meaning the word of God, as the basis for his statement, he begins with four. This is stated in order to substantiate what he just claimed in the preceding verse, that those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So, for this is the word of promise is given to demonstrate this, the verse that we're looking at right now. If something came by a promise before it actually occurred, then it cannot be ascribed to what is usual. If somebody says something is going to happen, a child is going to be born of a virgin, and then it happens, it can't be ascribed as usual, right? That doesn't matter what God predicts. If he says something is going to happen, and then it happens, it's not the norm, right? Now, we can make logical deductions about the future. The stock market will probably go up tomorrow. And if it does, then you can say I'm a prophet, right? No, I'm using a logical set of analysis, to. but then we could have a calamity. We could have an earthquake, and all of a sudden the stock market tanks tomorrow. So it's not a guarantee. It's just that we have certain logical things that say something will happen tomorrow. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when somebody says something is going to happen, and then it actually happens, okay? People have children all the time. But it occurs after the union of the two people and when that union is at the right time and with all of the right conditions. It is not something that we can say will definitively happen, when it will happen, what the sex of the child will be, etc., etc., etc. We just can't do those things, right? We can't say that at 5.53 on uh, 28 April of this coming year, you're going to have a child and it's going to be a boy. We, we don't do that. We have no idea about those things. So when God said to Abraham, at this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son, it is reflecting something outside of the normal. It is showing that the promise is tied into the word which has been spoken. If the word is true, then the problem is actually the word itself. They are one and the same. And thus it is because Genesis 17 verse 19 records, then God said, no, Sarah, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Not only was a son promised, but his name was given, Isaac. In addition to this, the selection of the child was tied directly to the covenant, which had already been announced to Abraham. And further, the timing of the event was also given, as was seen in Genesis 18, verse 10. I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. The promise is, in fact, the word. God's pronouncements issue from who he is. This is the extraordinary marvel, which is the word of God, the Holy Bible. If it is the word of God, and it has proven itself time and time and time again, then what it proclaims must come about. What am I thinking about right here? Anybody know what I'm thinking about? My brother who died yesterday, right? Paul. The Bible says he will be raised to new life. It must come about. We have the proof in the Bible itself. The word is the promise and the promise is the word. God has spoken and he has said 
that Paul will rise again because of this faith in Christ. It must come about. If it doesn't come about, then this is not the God of the Bible, and the word is not sure. And it is 100% sure. Anybody that can't see that after reading the Bible and studying what it says thousands of years ago, and then coming true again and again and again in the Messiah, and then if all of those prophecies you read about, you know, I did a sermon one time, there are 390 prophecies or something of Christ, and only eight of them would fill the universe with atoms because of the, the improbability of it happening, right? On a sermon, I took somebody's information one time, and he says, for these certain prophecies to come about, you would need to have enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas, three feet high, and then you could parachute in anywhere in the state, put your hand down and pull out one, and that would be the right one out of all of those silver dollars, right? And that's with like eight prophecies out of 390 that they say are recorded the Messiah. Now, let me ask you something. How many pictures of the Messiah have we had since we started in the book of Genesis? Literally thousands, thousands. Sometimes we have 10 or 12 in a single verse. This word, this word, this word, this word, and this word all have this meaning, and it is pointing to this, right? The ark, the menorah, all of these things, every single time. This isn't by chance. I may have made some logical deductions that were incorrect, one, maybe two. Okay, I'm kidding. But anyway, there's no way that time and time and time again, these things keep coming up, pointing to Christ. Thousands of them. People say there are 390 prophecies of Christ. That is only explicit prophecies that they very quickly pulled out of the Bible. That is not from a detailed study of the Bible. There are thousands of them. There are thousands of them. We have the surest word of all. 100%. Don't let your faith be tested or tried in any way. We've got five more minutes, so we'll just finish this verse and be done. Um, if uh, this is the word of God, and it is, it's proven itself, then what it proclaims must come about. Life application. People who claim they have a, and I, I, you know me with this, I, 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 I'm going to upset somebody online, I don't care. People who have claimed that they have a word from the Lord or a vision from God, and I'm not talking about, you know, the Lord has put things on my heart. He's put things on the heart of many of us in here. And we say, well, maybe I should go out and do this today. And it turned out to be exactly what we should do, right? Or you could say, I knew I needed to fly home. I knew that my, my mother would die tomorrow or something. You know what I'm saying? We know this. That is not what I'm talking about here. The Lord leads his children. He's given us the spirit to guide us. I'm talking about a word from the Lord, a prophetic utterance, okay? This is the word of the Lord. This will come about, okay? A word from the Lord or a vision from God will be accountable for what they speak, okay? It's a scary thing to even contemplate. Too often such terms are just thrown out with no backing and which do not come true. I've, I have personally heard a billion of them. I'm sure I see some head shaking in here. You've been in churches where somebody says, this is the word of the Lord and it never came about. It never. I would not want to be standing in front of the Lord on that day and say, I spoke in your name. Because there are saved people that have done this stupid thing. They've done this incredibly stupid thing and said, the Lord told me this or that, all right? And it didn't come about. That is not a good place to be, okay? You've got to be careful with that. Um, imagine the consequences of ascribing a word from God, which is not a word from God. Do not be swayed by those who throw out visions and fantasies from their heads. You want to read a bunch of lunatics? I got a friend that sends me these things constantly. Oh, she's wonderful. She sends me all of these um. She, I couldn't do it. She goes to these like rapture websites and they're constantly predicting. Look, if there was rapture was coming on Hanukkah and then she emailed me the next day, well, the Hanukkah people 
really shut up. There's no noise from them today. And then the next day, it's, well, it's going to happen. And this goes on all the time. And these people are making prophecies, and they're saying the Lord is coming, and I had a vision, and I, I can't imagine the bizarre thinking of people like that. And then they're wrong, and they just go on to the next one, dog returning to its vomit. I would not want to be standing in those people's shoes when they have to stand before the Lord and say, I misled people again and again. And they're just delusional. They say these stupid things to each other, and she's, she'll send me a whole thing of what they were talking about. You know, look, my mother went to the store, and she picked out golden grams, and we know that Jesus is the golden something. And, like, golden grams are their ticket to heaven. It's just crazy. Just, ugh. Anyway, it, there are people like this that do this all the time. I get them from this girl, and this is just one lady that sends them to me. Just imagine what's going on out there. Anyway, we're accountable for where we place our faith. Okay, you want to place your faith, place it right here. Anybody that tells you anything that is not recorded in this book, take it with a grain of salt. Okay, and there are people that have made prophecies that have come true, right? But they haven't done it in the name of the Lord. And the Old Testament says, I may send somebody to give you a prophecy, and it comes true, but he doesn't. I've done that. I've allowed that to see if your hearts will be swayed away from me, right? The Lord is going to test us. He's going to check us out. Are we going to hold fast to this? And if you don't know this, then you're in a bad, bad place because all of a sudden this guy says a prophecy. You know what? The Messiah emailed me a couple days ago. No kidding. They, I, I did the, the sermon on the Feast of the Lord, the first one, and the first thing I did was open with the laws and old, it's fulfilled, blah, blah, blah. And he sent me the thing about exactly the verse that everybody reads, Matthew, um, um, yet not one jot or tittle. Will, and I read that last week saying somebody emailed me that, but I didn't tell you what his answer to me was. I went back and I said what the Bible said, and I said, so what do you think about that? And he came back and he said, I am the Messiah. Guess what? Blocked. Completely blocked from, from ever emailing me again. Can you imagine somebody saying, I'm the Messiah? Wow. Yeah, I didn't want to have an, any more conversation with that nut job. Wow. Unbelievable. Okay, so we're starting next week in 910. That's a short verse, but we don't have time for it today, so we'll go ahead and close. Um, yes? The shirt you're wearing is from Tennessee. Oh, this isn't from Tangi? I don't think so. Oh, why didn't you tell? She she had these things sitting out today, and I was opening. So this is from the lady in Tennessee. Oh, I oh I'm not going to give her name because I thank you. I know. Don't say it out loud anyway because maybe she doesn't want me to say it. But thank you. I thought that was for my daughter. Okay, when I get home, you got to show me because they were sitting there, and I just I didn't know if this is from her. I am so thankful. Wow. Wow, well, and she might have gotten mad and clicked off, and then I've got to, oh, no. you you got to let me know these things. She had everything sitting out, and I just assumed it was from Tangie. So I've been telling everybody Tangie today. Oh, we got to pray. Jesus half-brothers. What? Jesus half-brothers. Yes, half-brothers. Why? Here we go. James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. Okay, but he had sisters as well. And it says sisters. Right, so we don't know other names. And his sisters are here with us. That and his sisters are here with us. And so I wasn't trying to say we didn't know all their names. And I did say, well, we know Jude and we know uh, James, but we don't know all of them. So, okay. Anyway, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for that, though. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for this class. We thank you for uh, the chance to come and read your word and to study it and to fellowship together. And uh, thank you for the wonderful soul that sent me this shirt, who I sent the wrong name out on that. I apologize to her right now. And Lord, I thank you for um, the chance to pray for Elaine and the rest of Paul's families that are right now meeting together and probably holding each other and wondering what to do next. And we would 
pray that uh, they would be have their path level before them and that the things that they decide would be uh, proper, that, that they would be without um, uh, difficulties, and that this would be a smooth time for them in their lives and that you would bless them as they move forward. And we certainly pray for Mike, the person who takes care of the website and his uh, medical condition today, and I'll be anticipating good news after his uh, outpatient surgery, and uh, hopefully uh, they'll find out what it is and that it won't be anything life-threatening. But we leave this in your capable hands, praying that you will take good care of him. And Lord, we just love you, we praise you, and we exalt you. We thank you for the many, many blessings of this life. And we give you these praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh boy, I'm glad you said that, Hidako, because yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. Oh boy. Okay, let me back this thing up and we got to say goodbye to these folks. Uh, great. Rick and Steve, it's good to have you guys here. Okay, we love you guys. Have a wonderful week and you take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye. See you next year. See, see you next year. That's right. Oh boy. Okay, I got to circle that before I forget where we were. Wow. That's wow. Goodness gracious. I've got to email her and tell her that. What's that? It is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. It is so Oh, yeah, I'm like, I know.